Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Monday the 3rd of May and on today's briefing, as Australia and America pull the last troops out of Afghanistan, we ask the tough question, have we lost this 20-year war? There's presently a stalemate in Afghanistan. The Taliban are ascendant. They control roughly 20% of the country. The Afghan government controls around a third and the rest of the country is contested. Very clear-eyed briefing on the state of Afghanistan in just a moment. First, Anika Smethurst is here with the big stories of the day. Perth has avoided another lockdown after another hotel quarantine breach where a hotel guard infected two of his housemates. Well, these people were in the community. We're in a state of semi-lockdown. Everyone was wearing masks and we had a very quiet society and that's avoided it at this point in time. That's the WA Premier Mark McGowan speaking yesterday, explaining the state would not go back into lockdown. He did have to stop fans from going to the local AFL derby, though. Uh, There were 45,000 people expected to watch Frio go up against West Coast, so that would have been pretty hard, Annika. Interesting to see if Mark McGowan's taking a different tact, I guess the tact that Gladys Berejiklian was calling for when she told him to toughen up a couple of weeks ago. It did seem like a big, maybe overreaction the first time around, but their system really hasn't been tested like the other states. They haven't had as many breakouts, so they haven't had to have the contact tracing and all the other sort of things swing into action. So it's good to see that after testing it a first time, maybe he won't take such a harsh approach now. Yeah, but he is getting some pretty serious criticism over their handling of hotel quarantine um, from uh, the head of the WA branch of the Australian Medical Association, actually, so pretty important figure, Andrew Miller, has slammed the WA government for not acknowledging the virus is spreading through the ventilation system in hotel quarantine. Uh, He invoked a World War II reference calling for a shake-up. If they can get 340,000 soldiers off the beach at Dunkirk in a week, we can move all of the COVID-positive people that we know about in these hotels to a safer location immediately. Yeah, interesting there. They don't have a split like some of the states where they move hotel quarantine between the people that have it and the people that don't. They just keep them all together. So Mm. it's quite an interesting call there. Residents of the Perth and Peel regions of WA still have to wear masks, though, and follow restrictions on gathering after last week's three-day COVID lockdown. One in three voters believe the government should be doing more to help stranded Australians return home, according to a new poll. Yeah, 59% of the more than 2,000 people surveyed in the poll for the Lowy Institute said the federal government, though, has done enough. Yeah, interesting. So, yeah, one-third saying not doing enough and almost two-thirds saying um, they have done enough. Um, More than 35,000 Australians are trying to get home, including 9,000 people that are in uh, India, around 650 of those are apparently very vulnerable. So interesting to see where Australians land on this, Annika. It seems that, you know, based on this poll, the political solution here is to basically do what they're doing. Yeah, I don't think there is a lot of political appetite to do more. And I know that hurts a lot of people that have loved ones overseas, but definitely the view in Canberra and often from both sides of politics privately is that There is a feeling in the community that these people that went away, uh, whether it's true or not, have been away for a long time now, have had the chance to come home. Now, we know that's not always the case. It is difficult to get on a plane. The government has put on repatriation flights and put out lots of loans for people trying to get back. And there is this sense, I, I feel, whenever I interview people that 
they say, well, they're over there, they're having a good time, like everybody's over there still having a Contiki tour, which we know isn't the case, but it's a definite perception that the government are aware of. And that's why they're not going to, you know, spend thousands more dollars putting on flights to get people home. Yeah, and this all comes after the debate over the last couple of days about enacting the Biosecurity Act to potentially lock up people trying to get home from India if they sort of sneak through third-party countries, which a lot of people thought was way too harsh. Um, I see that overnight the US have banned people coming back from India except for their own citizens. So they're still allowing their own citizens to return from India. So Australia taking a very tough stance there. Absolutely. Same in the UK. They've put them into a red category, meaning if you come in from India, you have to do two weeks in quarantine, but you're allowed to come in. And look, it sits really uncomfortably with me that we would threaten jail on Australian citizens who pledged allegiance to our country that they wouldn't be allowed to come in. I think it's more of a deterrent. I bet you in a few years' time we never actually see any charges come from this. It's to stop people trying to find back ways into the country. Mm. Yeah, it's a very different approach to the rest of the world. And the government will review the decision to lease Darwin Port to a Chinese-owned company. Nine newspapers are reporting the federal government has asked the Department of Defence to review the lease, which was set up by the NT government in 2015. Yeah, Defence will examine whether the Chinese company Landbridge should be forced to give up the 99-year lease on national security grounds. Labor has long questioned the deal, with some calling it a strategic own goal. Yeah, if we ripped up this deal, the Chinese government would be very angry. Um, not that we should um, fear that and let that affect all of our decisions, but this would be such a sort of blatant slap in the face. Mm, it, it was amazing that it got through at the time. Even Obama was pretty disappointed in our decision to turn a blind eye to this deal. But once it's done, it's very hard to back out of. And hundreds of soccer fans in the UK have stormed a stadium in Manchester, still angry at their club's decision to join the ill-fated Super League. <laughs> The more than 200 Manchester United fans let off flares outside their home ground, Old Trafford, before storming onto the pitch and forcing the postponement of the match against Liverpool this morning. Yeah, hostility towards the American Glazer family who own the club has boiled over in recent weeks after they tried to join the breakaway European Super League last month. And as we all know, that only lasted two days. A manhunt is underway in Townsville for a crew member who jumped ship from a livestock carrier while other crews seek asylum in Australia. So this ship docked at Townsville on Saturday night, but 11 of the crew refused to go back on board and they're wanting to stay here in Australia. And then a 12th person, a Pakistani man, escaped... Uh, and he's on the run, believed to be also wanting asylum. News Corp is reporting the 11 other crew are in custody of Border Force officials and have tested negative for the coronavirus. All right, Annika, we'll catch you tomorrow. Uh, Jan Fran's joining us as we look at the state of Afghanistan. It's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. US President Joe Biden announcing last month that American troops would withdraw from Afghanistan by September 11 this year. Yeah, and our Prime Minister quickly followed suit, confirming the remaining 80 Australian defence personnel would also be leaving. In line with the United States and our other allies and partners, the last remaining Australian troops will depart Afghanistan in September 2021. 
Around 40,000 Australians have been deployed to Afghanistan since the conflict began in 2001. 41 of them lost their lives. And many more have taken their own lives since. More than 150,000 Afghan civilians, military personnel and Taliban fighters were killed in the conflict, which cost more than $1.2 trillion. So on this episode of The Briefing, have we lost the war in Afghanistan? And what's going to happen now that we're completely pulling out? Mariam Zahid is the founder and director of Afghan Women on the Move. It's a support group for Afghan women here and in Afghanistan. She actually grew up there. She lived there until she was 15. And she says she's really worried about the withdrawal of US and Australian troops because the Taliban will expand their power. So if Taliban comes and take power, which is already uh, in a conversation, in negotiation, uh, what is there for women? What's there for children? What's there for education system? What's there for media? And we just don't want uh, to leave or they don't want to leave by one rules that Taliban just brings from their perspective of uh, misinterpretation of uh, religion or Quran. It's so scary. I've been there. I was there without that much force and and instability that are currently is in Afghanistan. Uh, I was scared 20 years ago. I was scared 40 years ago. And I'm still scared. Nothing has been changed. People look the same. The fate of women are the same. No constitution has improved to accommodate women. There are some symbolic figures here and there. But um, whoever I speak to in Afghanistan, whoever I've worked to, and last night I was speaking to a group of women in Afghanistan and also in rural areas, they say, to be honest, they are so scared. So Mariam also says that despite the war in Afghanistan, the Taliban still a part of everyday life in the country. Very much. Very much. They are on the street. They are in their your homes. They are in your mind. Directly and indirectly, they have influence. And because of the instability in Afghanistan, and we have very, uh, let's say, some of the politicians and, and platforms are very corrupt in Afghanistan, um, there's not much they can do. That was Mariam Zahid, she's an Afghan Australian uh, who is in regular contact with people on the ground in Afghanistan. Uh, let's get a more detailed picture of the security situation in the country. Russ Balkoza has travelled there five times during the 20-year war. He's a defence analyst. Uh, he's advised the federal government on their operations in Afghanistan. Uh, he's met Afghan presidents. He's met Stanley McChrystal, Dave Petraeus, the US commanders of the International Security Forces. So he has a very in-depth knowledge of the situation there. Russ Bale, thank you for joining us. How secure is Afghanistan at the moment? There's presently a stalemate in Afghanistan. The Taliban are ascendant. Um, they, they have been for a number of years now. They control roughly 20% of the country. The Afghan government controls around a third and the rest of the country is contested. The Taliban are kept at bay due to the presence of uh, US enablers. And when I say enabler, I'm talking about um, the extensive use of air power, of strike aircraft, delivering ordnance, but also drones. So a big focus of our work was training and mentoring the Afghan National Army. How strong is it? What have, what have we left them? Do they have a functioning military or, or even a functioning government? The Afghan um, National Defence and Security Forces comprises the, um, the, the military and the police and the, the uh, security or, or secret service within Afghanistan. Um, they're at different levels of development. Um, they always were. 
the Afghan National Army is uh, made up of um, of different elements, and they're at different levels of um, of development. The U.S. Uh, towards the end was focusing heavily on special forces, and they are of divisional strength. They're they're about as good as um, as spe- special forces are anywhere in that region. They've been used extensively to um, uh, play whack a mole, as it were. The Afghan National Army is heavily dependent on on logistics pushing forward bullets and beans to the soldiers. The, the US used to describe it as, as the long pole in the tent. That was never developed um, sufficiently. It's going to be problematic in terms of sustainment. The Afghan National Police were a very corrupt entity. They play a significant role in, um, in, in holding areas that have been cleared of insurgents and, and providing security to the people. That's a big problem because the people never really trusted their government. In many cases, the police were incredibly corrupt um, and would shake down people. Um, they, they didn't deliver justice at the grassroots and that's where they competed with the insurgency. Um, and insurgency is, is a violent competition in governance. And the, the Taliban provided an alternative. They, they delivered justice at the grassroots. That's something the Afghan government always found hard to compete with. How strong is the Taliban now? Are they any stronger than what they were in 2001 when the United States went in? Or are they a little bit weaker? Look, in 2001, the Taliban controlled most of the country, about 90% of the country. Right now, they are an ascendant force. I've heard figures of anywhere up to 85,000 um, armed fighters, between 50 and possibly 85,000. I'm a bit hesitant in terms of that upper figure. Um, a lot of the Taliban fighters are part-time. We're going into fighting season right now. Um, that's after the um, the opium harvest. Um, so a lot of uh, peasant farmers um, are paid to pick up a rifle to implant IEDs. They're absolutely um, uh, you know, confident. They've done a deal with a superpower. Um, right now, they view themselves as, as having won um, with wow. the US uh, quitting the field. Yeah, what are you picking up in terms of the, the information about their reaction to the big announcement that we'll be pulling out our troops in September? They're absolutely uh, triumphant. And one thing about the Taliban is, is they didn't stick around for 20-odd years after 9-11 to enter into some sort of uh, power-sharing arrangement. They're, they're there to win. I mean, what strikes me is kind of mind-blowing, really, is that they've withstood hundreds of thousands of you know Western troops coming in and out of the country over the last 20 years, $2 trillion of military spending and they're still there. Why and how are they so resilient? Look, they're resilient um, because they had an external safe haven. Um, they relocated their leadership into into Pakistan and that state not only provided a safe haven, but it actively in covert and overt ways backed um, the Taliban. Taliban were a creature, if you like, of the Pakistan military, of the Pakistan Inter-Services Intelligence Organization. The problem with Pakistan and Afghanistan, or rather Afghanistan, is that it was always abstracted from its region. It occupies a fairly significant strategic space between Central and South Asia. It's potentially a sort of conduit from the energy-rich um, Central Asia to the energy deficit South Asia, it, it contains enormous um, mineral wealth, you know, at least a trillion dollars. It's what its geology is worth. So the Pakistanis um, 
had a vested interest in supporting a, a proxy force that would at least um, maintain its influence in Afghanistan. But now they're sort of presented with an opportunity to um, have that organisation in complete control. That's the broader geopolitical, I guess, power dynamic there. But what about their their impact on people's everyday lives? Because I imagine they wouldn't have survived if they didn't have something to offer local people on the ground. Yeah, look, we discussed it briefly in terms of um, that recourse to um, to justice. I mean, the Afghan um, rural population doesn't really ask for much from its government, but what they do want is um, the ability to live their lives um, in safety and unmolested from um, thuggery, warlordism um, and a whole range of other issues. Um, the Afghan government couldn't provide this sort of governance at that grassroots levels. And I think back in 2001, there was a lot of Western hubris that the Taliban had been destroyed. They were viewed after that as spoilers. They should have been engaged. They should have been brought into the fold, in, into that big tent, as it were. Well, it goes against um, everything um, Western values really stand for. And I, I think that's why they're so offensive and seen as the enemy. But we, it sounds like we've misjudged their strategic role in this region. Part of the reason we were there, I mean, the, the United States was there to make sure that a 9-11 didn't happen again and, and to destroy al-Qaeda and a range of other terrorist entities that are ranged along um, that border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Human rights are a fairly significant factor there. I mean, a red line, um, certainly when Obama was uh, was was in power in, in Washington, was uh, women's rights. I mean, Afghanistan had made significant progress after the intervention in terms of um, women's health, um, the number of uh, girls that were going to school, um, the ability of for, for women to, to leave the house, you know, um, without a, a male relative accompanying them, completely encumbered in a burqa or whatever you want to call it, a niqab. So these are issues that, uh, you know, we're, we're unfortunately, um, things are going to go backwards. Have we lost this war? Like has yes. the United States? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I mean, there's a lot of deniers um, that will say things like we heard in the Vietnam, for example, that we won all the um, the battles and, and that type of thing. But the reality was this was always an, a military operation, um, or it was a political um, problem dressed up as a as a military operation. You know, we we killed lots of Taliban, tens of thousands of them, um, but they're still there. It's a big call to say we've lost. I mean, you started the interview by saying. Um, When this war started, uh, the Taliban controlled 80 or 90% of the country. They now control 20%, but it's rising fast and everyone's pulling out. Where where is this all going? When I say they they control 20% of the country, that means they absolutely dominate it. The rest of the space is contested. It's not a big call. I mean, you'll find a lot of analysts saying that. I'm not saying it's a big call in terms of like a a really extreme statement. It's just in the whole context of the lives that have been lost, the money that's been spent, the heartache, the uncertainty, the lack of security that we come out 20 years later with not that much. With to nothing. Sh- with, with a lost war. Yeah, um, that, that's that's right. I mean, you know, at, at a local level, we, we lost 41 soldiers um, in this country. We, we had hundreds more that were wounded. Um there's been a lot of suicides as well. This is a time that we've really got to take stock of, uh, you know, where we went with this intervention. You know, now it's uh, everyone heading to the exits. Um, it, uh, the future doesn't bode well for Afghanistan. 
Defence analyst Raspal Kosa there who says that we've lost the war. Pretty, pretty starkly, he said it, didn't he? Yeah, and he was essentially saying there that the strategy itself was doomed to fail. Pretty deflating, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I was sort of deflated about the 20-year war in Afghanistan to begin with. And now that it sounds like we haven't come out on top at all and that it might actually be quite a good summer for the Taliban, yeah, not sure how to pep this one up. Yeah, I'm not sure how we turn this around and get a laugh. Look, I think, you know, we're in the process of pulling out. We're really going to be assessing our legacy in that country for many months and many years to come. And I think the picture is going to become clearer the more distance we have from Afghanistan. I wonder how we will look back at this time in 50 years. Maybe how we're looking at Vietnam right now. Ouch. All right, tomorrow on The Briefing, uh, we're going to take you to India to find out the reality of this enormous COVID surge. They hit 400,000 daily cases over the weekend. Listener.